If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be a, there's a blue Bible on the floor near you. You can grab that one and turn to Galatians chapter 4 as well. I didn't catch the page number today, but uh, Galatians is in the blue Bible, so we're good on there. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> so, it's good to be here today, though. It's good to be here today, that's for sure. Um, sports. Most of you probably thought, of course, you know, <laughs> Tim, I love sports, and, um, and so I'm going to introduce this with a, with a sports analogy, if you will. Um, the more you know about a sport and the intricacies of it, you, you tend to have a deeper appreciation for what it takes to be good at that sport, for a team to be good at that sport. Many of you know that, uh, that we are a soccer family. And years ago, I came across an interesting fact about soccer. There are only 17 rules to the game of soccer. That's it, 17 rules. It's a simple sport. But what makes it fascinating is seeing great players and cohesive teams. There's, there's strategy, there's, there's teamwork that takes place in the game. There are individuals with, with different skill sets within the game. Sarah's old soccer coach used to emphasize what he called the game within the game. And really what a player does when they don't have the ball is often just as important as the player that does have the ball. See, and once you begin to understand a particular sport better, you're going to engage more and more time into that sport and into the particulars of that sport. And what goes into making a great player and a great team. You will tend to appreciate the game more and more. You will invest time and effort and energy into this endeavor because you see the quality and the worth, and as a result, an admiration develops for that sport. This is perhaps why I don't really care for the game of cricket. It's a strange game. I know it's a little bit like baseball, um, one thing I do know is in a single game, it can last for days. <laughs> but I don't know the rules exactly, nor do I know what it really takes to be a good cricket player. So I'm sure I'm underappreciating the game because there's a lot of people that play it. And uh, it's something I know so little about, and so I have undervalued the game. Think about this. In our engagement in a sport, in, in the love we have for a game, the sport didn't change. It didn't all of a sudden get better overnight. It didn't become something great all of a sudden. What changed? You did, right? Your perspective did. Your knowledge did. Even your acknowledgement has changed. It lacked value in your life, not because of the sport, but because you placed so little value on that sport so little significance on it. It wasn't until you invested yourself into it that you gained a respect and admiration for that game. Keep a finger in Galatians. I'm going to have you turn over to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to introduce Galatians chapter 4 with, with another passage over in Romans chapter 8 just for a moment. Usually when we talk about salvation, we keep it simple and we talk, well, we, we talk about salvation. Um, and even we might consider perhaps three different aspects of our salvation that are regularly spoken of within Christian circles. 
And I'm going to illustrate that with Romans chapter 8, just reading verses 28 through 30. So follow along, if you will, starting in chapter 8, verse 28 of Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These three verses tie in three common aspects of our salvation, and they are justification, sanctification, and glorification. uh, Justification is, is, is past tense. It means that I have been freed from the penalty of sin. It's past tense. I have been freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I am presently, currently, right now, being freed from the power of sin. And then glorification, the third part of our salvation, I'm going to be free from the presence of sin. Within this description of salvation, it's a a great way to break down what salvation includes. But there is more. There is a vital missing link in our threesome. And it is this vital missing link that I want to look at this morning. It is the doctrine of adoption. In our list of salvation, adoption is what falls between our justification and our sanctification. It occurs with justification. But this is not a detail of our salvation, or at least it shouldn't be a detail of our salvation, because the doctrine of adoption is a vital part in understanding the Christian's salvation. When we don't understand the doctrine of adoption, we miss out on so much that God has for us. We miss out on what God has done for us and will do for us. There's a lack of admiration as we undervalue God and his work in the life of a believer. There's a lack of love and respect and worth because we have not invested the proper time and effort and energy into our studies of our God. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy that is to, to be able to pray to you with, with such a term, to be able to say, Heavenly Father. We don't need to address you in our prayers as, as judge, as one that is far away from our lives and hearts. But we have the privilege to come before you, calling you Father. And with such a name, we in turn, we are your children Each of us, we're a child of yours. What an amazing thing to consider. The one who believes in the work of your son and what he has done on their behalf, you call a son, you call a daughter. And in such a relationship, Lord, our our prayers become so personal. They're not so formal and so cold. Lord, we pray today. Father, we pray today that your word, your truth, to shine in a way that we may gain a deeper appreciation for you as our heavenly Father. And may these truths of Scripture, Lord, 
change our view of not only you, but ourselves as well. For we are your adopted sons and daughters. May we consider today, Father, the love and inheritance that comes with such an amazing position before you. We are adopted. We are part of your family, brought into your life by the life and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to better understand your master plan and the salvation of the hell-bent sinner, might we see you for who you truly are and live in light of our adoption. Amen. So I want to be clear on, on what God has done for us in our justification so that we're even going to further appreciate what God has done in our adoption. Justification, and you've probably heard this recently, <laughs> is a legal declaration of righteousness by double imputation. What is double imputation, you may ask? 2 Corinthians 5.21, pretty good definition of it. Um, Paul's talking, uh, speaking the Apostle Paul, and he says this, for the sake he, and that's God the Father, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Part one of this double imputation, which means, imputation simply means something that's credited to another's account, is our sin is imputed to Christ. That's the first part of double imputation. The passage says in, in 521 of 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. This is seen in Jesus' work on the cross. And then part two, there's the imputation of Christ's righteousness transferred to the believer. And the verse goes on to say, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is Jesus' life that always honored and obeyed God. And this is what makes you and I justified before a holy God. This is what makes us right with God. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't do the justifying. It is a declaration of what Christ has done for us in his life and death. As believers, we are legally declared righteous by double imputation. This is justification. Now, praise God, because in justification, we're declared not guilty by the work of Christ. We are, we are forgiven by God as our judge. And it is not a forgiveness he simply just wishes into being. Forgiveness came at a price. And that is the very work on Christ on our behalf. So we have God as a judge in a courtroom who forgives our sins by the work of Christ. But see, you viewing God as only, you, as only a judge, you're, we're misrepresenting him. You see him as only a judge, you're, you're then waiting for failure. You're waiting for sin to happen. And I think so many of us, we, we get stuck in the courtroom. We regularly view God as judge. A judge is impartial and isn't one to show compassion. A judge is only concerned with your guilt 
or your innocence. If that's the only way you view God, you will fear him. You will fear his displeasure. You're always in fear of losing your salvation. You believe you're responsible to earn God's favor, to earn God's grace, to earn God's mercy by what you're doing and how you are doing. Your behavior is the basis on whether or not you're going to end up back in that courtroom. Pleading for your innocence, seeking for forgiveness. Praise God as one of his, Jesus. Jesus is there by your side letting the judge know that you're covered. Covered by his blood. Covered by his work in your justification. But all the same, your interaction with God is always as judge. I sin, I go to the courtroom, the judge looks on, I'm praying for forgiveness through Jesus, it is received, I leave, and then repeat. Until you and I understand that God is not only a judge, but also a father, our father by adoption, we will live out our Christian life in this way. A judge waits for, you, waits for your failures to see you. But a father is loving and guiding and always with you. The doctrine of adoption needs to be a part of your Christian life. If not, you are a, uh, you're a perpetual defendant in the courtroom. Not loved, not cared for, not directed by a father. So undeserving, I'm sorry, so understanding the doctrine of adoption impacts the way you see your salvation. Not understanding the doctrine of adoption also affects your relationship with other people as well. You are a member of the family of God. Look around in this room. These are your brothers and your sisters adopted into God's family. We as believers are all members of one family. And the work that goes on in this church is not community service. It is not volunteer work. It is family work. It is family work. We offer our time and our service, our talents, our finances, as we contribute to the good of the family and the honor of our Father. If you negate the doctrine of adoption, you look around and you see a bunch of justified sinners sitting next to you. They're trying hard. They're working hard just as you are not to sin so as not to find themselves back in that courtroom. These aren't fellow defendants sitting next to you. That is your brother and that is your sister sitting next to you. The doctrine of adoption is a piece that's far too often overlooked in our salvation. Consider the doctrine of adoption and sanctification. This present time when you and I are being freed from the power of sin. Why does the Christian work so hard at being a better person? Being more in line with God's expectations for himself or herself. Is it because we don't want to be found in that courtroom again? Standing before a judge in fear? Or, or are we being sanctified because as a part of God's family, we want to be more like our older brother, Jesus Christ. 
Is he not our older brother? Recall what I read in Romans 8.29 earlier. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among what? Many brothers. The original family was God the Father and God the Son. And I would even argue God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was part of the original family. Then as we come into the family of God, as we are adopted, we have an older brother in Jesus. Then in our salvation, we are maturing, we are maturing to be more like our older brother. Again, Romans 8:29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed, not to follow a bunch of rules, but to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In our, in our sanctification, we mature in a family likeness. Ephesians tells us this in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you see it is no longer the, 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 uh, just us trying to keep a set of rules as part of the family of God, doesn't it make sense that it will grow in the likeness of the family? Obedience, again, that is our sanctification, is simply maturing into a family likeness. And lastly, what about our glorification? Recall that's a, a future time, that's, that's in the future when you and I will be free from the presence of sin. Consider the doctrine of adoption in terms of our glorification. As an heir, what the Bible calls a fellow heir of Christ, that's who we are, what a benefit it is in knowing the doctrine of adoption because we are assured of our eternal life. We have confidence that we have eternal life. All that is his will be yours, Christian. First John tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, the epistle tells us, Beloved, we are what? God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Do you struggle, even at times, with the assurance of your salvation as a believer? If I was being honest, I'd say I have. And I may be oversimplifying this a bit, but I'd say the two biggest reasons for this lack of assurance, why it is we struggle with the assurance of salvation, is number one, habitual sin. A lifestyle of sin in our lives. And in that case, there's no assurance at all. Because, well, to be honest with you, you may not be saved. If you're walking and living in sin, I would question any decision you have claimed to have made in being a follower of Jesus Christ. But then the second reason 
as to why we often deal with a lack of assurance, or, of assurance of salvation. We don't understand the doctrine of adoption. That you are a child of God. You have been chosen by God to be in his family. And as such, in your adoption, you can't be removed from his family. God does not and cannot just stop loving his child no more than you would stop loving your child when he or she disappoints you. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be, uh, read uh, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to uh, take a look at some details through these seven verses. Starting in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Apostle Paul starts off right away and says, I mean that the heir. It, it, it almost seems like he's starting mid-sentence or mid-thought when he says that. And that's because he was. Um, so because of this mid-point, this mid-thought statement, we're going to briefly look back to what Paul's been dealing with. So I'm going to jump around a little bit between Galatians 2 and Galatians 3, kind of to introduce Galatians 4 to us so we know where Paul is going. I want you to turn back a couple of pages or look over to the left to Galatians 2. Verse 14, Galatians 2, verse 14. Paul opposes Peter with these words of critique. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, and that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This group who swayed Peter to, to misstep in his conduct with the Gentile believers, they are called Judaizers. Legalism was their middle name. They were teaching that it was necessary to adopt Jewish customs and practices, especially those found in the law of Moses, in order, in order to be saved. They were adding works of the law to the believer's salvation. And the Apostle Paul says here, hold on. Their conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul then begins midway through Galatians chapter 2 to deal with the beautiful doctrine of justification. In chapter 3, the apostle Paul defends justification by faith alone. That justification has nothing to do with what I do or how hard I work at being morally good. 
he states the Holy Spirit was received by faith, not by works of the law. Look at Galatians 3, chapter, or, or verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's his first point of his argument. The second, he uses Abraham from the Old Testament as an example. Look at verse 6, Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. The law did not count Abraham as righteous. It was his belief. It was that a man is justified by faith, not by the works of the law. And the third point that Paul makes in chapter 3 is that he says that the law, as a matter of fact, it came 430 years later after Abraham. Take a look at Galatians 3.17. This is what I mean. The law which came, for, came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So to defend justification by faith alone, Paul's telling us this. In your salvation, the Holy Spirit was received by faith. Two, Abraham himself was justified before God by faith. And three, it was 430 years later the law came, so his point is this. If keeping the law makes one justified, then explain Abraham, who did not have the law, and yet he was justified before God. And then at the end of chapter 3, this statement is made by the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you belong to Christ, you are an heir of the promise God made to Abraham. It is a promise outside of keeping the law. It is a promise that came before even the law existed. Galatians 2.16 tells us this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. Now, now may we understand when Paul says this term in Galatians 4, verse 1, I mean that an error. I mean that an error. So our outline for today is going to cover three important topics related to the doctrine of adoption. The first one is the prior condition to our adoption. The second, the process of our adoption. And the third, the purpose of our adoption. So let's take a look at the prior condition to our adoption. I'm in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first three verses here. Let me read them again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
In our first two verses today, Paul offers an illustration to, ex- to help explain a truth. We have this heir. He would be the heir of a, of a rich estate one day. One day, everything, everything his father owned would be his. He is the owner of his father's property and possessions. And this heir is, as verse 1 tells us, is the owner of everything. He owns it today, but he hasn't claimed it as of yet. So he is not ready to take over the responsibilities of ownership at this time. Why? Because as long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave. He may be promised everything, and to be sure, it is his. Everything is his. But verse 2 states, it's not until the date set by his father. And until then, he is under guardians and managers. So what's going on here exactly? There's an immaturity in the child's present status. And he requires guardians and managers to oversee him, preparing him for the future. They're training him up. The illustration points us to the restrictions this child currently is dealing with. And therefore, he is no different than a slave. Let's look at verse 3 for the application of this illustration. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we are told in the same way we also, when we were children... We were enslaved. Enslaved to what? The elementary principles of the world. This term is a little debated and, and to its exact meaning, but um, it has a reference to the basics or to childish things. Does it refer to what the Jews and their enslavement to the law of God, is, is it referring to that? Well, based on the case that Paul's making back in chapter 3 of Galatians, it seems to be that it could refer to this, to the Jews and, and their enslavement to the law of God. Or, or does it refer to the Gentiles and their enslavement to their gods? Because if you look just past our passage today in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And honestly, no matter your background, whether it be law-keeping or chasing after other gods in your life, here's the issue. The unbeliever is always enslaved to some form of idolatry, right? They wouldn't call it that, but that's what God calls it. Idolatry is anything that detracts us from a biblical salvation, anything that keeps us from reconciling to God. And what happens is we are enslaved to the things that pull us away from God, things that, that, that put us in rebellion to God, and we miss out on the freedom that only Christ can offer. And this is our prior condition to our adoption. We're enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Let's see what God did in order for our adoption to be initialized. It's the process of our adoption. This is part two of our going through Galatians chapter four, the process of our adoption. Let's look at verses four and five of Galatians. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What did God do? And realize this, God the Father initialized this, it wasn't you and it wasn't me. God sent forth his son. And when did God the Father do this? When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, it's a precise time, it's ordained by God himself, a time that was fixed. It wasn't too early, and it wasn't too late. It was an actual time on just the right day. It was a historical date and time that Jesus was incarnated. God sent forth his son, verse 4 tells us. That term sent forth means to be dispatched. God the Father dispatched his son so we may be adopted into their family. God's son, Jesus Christ, is the Father's only son. He is special and he is unique. God the Father sent forth, implying that he was sent from somewhere. Where was he sent from? From heaven. His special, unique son was sent forth from heaven so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? And eternal life. God's son, unique and special, sent forth from heaven. The son is fully divine. He is fully God. If he is not fully God, he could not have justified the sinner. Verse four goes on to say that God's son was what? Born of woman, born under the law. Jesus was just not plopped down on earth by his father one day, right? Not there yesterday, here today kind of thing. He was born. He was born as we are born, born of woman. He came into this world this way so that he could be fully human. Romans 8 tells us in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was not simply a manifestation of God. He was not a spirit. He was not a ghost. He was not an alien being from a different planet. He was born physically. He took upon himself a human nature. This is the incarnation. And why? Why? Why not just stay God? Why didn't just... Couldn't Jesus just stay God and share the gospel on earth? In God's plan, this is how he initiated the great doctrine of adoption. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You and I, we are born with original sin. Christ born without sin. Yet verse 4 states he was born under the law. He was born and lived under the law of God. And he obeyed it perfectly. Imagine having Jesus as a friend or a brother. This guy obeyed everything perfectly. In his life, and this is so important, he achieved a perfect righteousness. 
a perfect righteousness. And this allowed him to be the one to suffer and die under the penalty of the law for the sake of the adopted. Recall it, that that this is the righteousness that is imputed to us as believers. The Son is paving the way for the doctrine of adoption to become a reality. The incarnation of Christ was, as verse 5 tells us in Galatians chapter 4, to redeem those who are under the law. The redeemed are those purchased by the work of Christ. Back in Galatians 3.10, Paul tells us, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Footers written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We are all under the law as well. And because we could not keep the law, we were to suffer as lawbreakers. The penalty, the penalty as a lawbreaker, death. Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all lawbreakers. Yet Jesus was the perfect law keeper. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death, and there is no escaping this biblical truth. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. The redeemed were purchased by God the Father through the Son's work. This is the process of our adoption. And now we move to our third point today, the purpose. What is the purpose of our adoption? This redemption of ours, it has three purposes, and we see this in verses 5 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4. Follow along again with me. So redemption was, it was it, what happened, what Christ did was to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Looking to verse 5, why is God the Father choosing to redeem a people to himself? There are three purposes as to why God paved the way for our adoption. Number one, so we might receive adoption as sons. You know, at work, it's not uncommon nowadays when I'm working to be called brother. I don't know if you experience that at work, but I, I hear that constantly as I walk into different stores and things where I work at. Hey, brother. You know, they don't know your name, so they're calling you brother. You might be called sister by your biological family, right? Hey, sister. I know there's times like when I'm talking to my girls, I refer to the other one not by their name, but simply as sister. Many today will also say, we are all God's children. The Bible contradicts that statement, though. Romans 8.14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. Not all are adopted. Not all are children of God. It is only those that are led by the Spirit, we are told. Understand this in, in the doctrine of adoption. He removed us from one family. And what family was that? Well, 
in this fallen world, in our sin, in our depravity, in our rebellion against God, being outside of Christ, here are some terms the Bible uses to describe the family that we were originally born into. Children of wrath, children of flesh, children of the devil, children of the slave woman, children of disobedience, children of darkness. Ephesians 2.19 tells us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, members of the household of God. God the Father has brought us into another family so that we are now members of the household of God's family. He adopted the justified sinner into his family. A short quote, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Close quote. Adoption is a grace-based blessing aside from the blessings of justification. He not only rescued messed up, selfish, self-righteous, idolatrous, prideful, spiritually dead, heading to hell sinners, but he adopted the justified sinner into his family. We miss this if we neglect the doctrine of adoption. God the Father His remedy is found in the incarnation of his son who was born of woman and born under the law so that legally we may be declared freed from the penalty of sin. If Jesus came to deliver the sinner from the guilt of sin and consequences of sin, would that not be enough? If the result of his incarnation was a justified sinner, would that not be enough? If his perfect righteous life without sin and is a substitutionary death on our behalf which provides an imputation of my sin to him and an imputation of his righteousness to me, would that not have been enough? If as judge, God passed a verdict of not guilty because of the finished work of his son, would that not have been enough? If all God gave me was justification, should we still not worship him? Should we still not praise him for his mighty and wondrous work He did in the life and death of his son on our behalf. We would stand before God as our judge and be declared not guilty. When Jesus stands up on our behalf and he tells the judge, I paid the price for this one, would that not be enough? But God, God's not done. He's not done wowing us. Because his remedy has not only justified us, but it has allowed us, as verse 5 states, to receive adoption as sons. This is the first part of the purpose of our adoption. As judge, God redeemed us through justification. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, he was legally bound by the law to do that, to find us not guilty. By the finished work of his son, those who are in Christ, have, we have all been forgiven of all wrongdoing. 
Praise God for that. But consider the type of love that would drive our judge to adopt us. Because he is not just a judge, but he is our father as well. Consider these words from John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love, see what kind of love the Father, the Father, not judge, but the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The doctrine of adoption puts us in a new legal standing that involves a particular loving intimate relationship with God as our Father. The believer is free from the law of sin and death, no longer condemned rebels. The Christian is justified and adopted. Verse 6, Galatians 4, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the second part of the purpose of our adoption. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. And stop there for a moment and consider the involvement of God to make you part of his family. We see the Trinity back in verse 4, God the Father sent forth his son. And now in verse 6, God the Father has sent his spirit. We can look at Ephesians 1 to to see kind of an expanding view that Paul gives us on the Trinitarian Trinitarian involvement in our adoption. Starting in verse 4. Ephesians 1, I'm just going to read 4 and 5, and then I'm going to jump down to 11 through 13 as well in in this chapter. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he, this is God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, again, God the Father, predestined us, he chose us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then down in verse 11, in him, Now we're speaking of in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Father chose us for adoption. In the Son, we have obtained uh, our adoption inheritance, and the Holy Spirit seals us into his family and is the guarantee of our adoption inheritance. The Trinity is seen at work here. And we're, back in in Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 6, where has our Heavenly Father sent his Spirit? Where has he sent him? into our hearts. As we pray, we don't pray to a distant, remote, removed God, do we? God, is our, as the Holy Spirit, is close. He's in our hearts. And when we cry out to God, we say, Abba, Father. Don't we often begin our prayers with Father? Let us not use that word lightly. The reason we have such a relationship with God is because of the doctrine of adoption. A short quote, we experience boldness before the face of God. In Christ, we are as righteous as he, that is Jesus is, before God. We have the privilege of calling him Abba, Father, close quote. This is the very 
way that our older brother also prayed to his father in heaven. Remember the night Jesus was with his disciples and, and he left to have them uh, so he could go pray? Mark 14, 36, this is how he starts off his prayer. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Imagine that, the same way Jesus, the Son of God, addresses God by praying, Abba, Father. This phrase, Abba, Father, it's such an intimate term. And we've been given the same right, the same privilege to address God in the same manner. Why? Because of the doctrine of adoption. Our third purpose for our adoption is found in verse 7, Galatians 4. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are not a slave, but a son. And as a son, an heir. It is because of the doctrine of adoption. You are not a slave, you've been adopted. You are no longer an enemy, but a son. We go from being slaves and enemies of God to being a child of God. You are not a slave of God, but a child of God's. Let that sink in. You are no longer a slave, but a child of God's. And the beautiful truth here of adoption is this. Not only are we sons, but we're heirs. See, in Paul's day, there were formal adoptions. And this is what Paul would be alluding to in this text. Uh, we got to be careful because our concept of adoption today can be different than the adoption of what Paul was referring to back then, right? And a lot of times we overlay our concept and our understanding of a topic rather than look back and see what the original writer was talking about. And so in, in formal adoption, there are some things that are similar, but in formal adoption, it was a formal legal decree that moved a, a, a person from one family to another. That person was still able to interact with his other family, his original family, but they were no, he no longer had any rights, he no longer had any debts, if you will, to that other family at all because everything was transferred over when he was adopted. And often adoption took place at a much older age as well because what they were looking for, what a family, a rich family, a wealthy family was looking for was someone who could carry on the family name, somebody that had already kind of proved himself um, in the world and maybe Politically, they needed him. Um, as a matter of fact, nine, nine of the Caesars, and there was about 12 Caesars, nine of the 12 Caesars were adopted. Pretty crazy. Because that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're taking someone that has potential and, and putting him in that place because they know that one day this child will grow up and inherit everything that the father owns. So in a formal legal decree, you too are his people. You are God's people called by his name. No one else has a claim on you. You are permanently, permanently a part of the family of God. You belong to God, and there is so much security in that. The process of adoption was expensive for the father. Another quote. The image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father, and you don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly only for him. There is nothing the son does to win or earn the status. It is simply received, close quote. Look who you are as an adopted son of God. You're a part of the family of God, an act initiated by God himself. This is not a temporary relationship. This is a permanent binding family relationship. 
based on all that Paul has said, you are a son. You are therefore an heir through God. You have all legal rights as sonship, of sonship. Here's the final blessing and privilege of the doctrine of adoption. You are an heir. Again, adoption in Paul's day was all about heredity. In Greek and Roman society, a wealthy family would adopt, and most adoptions were done when the family didn't have an heir. Maybe they had all girls. Maybe they couldn't conceive. The heir would carry on the father's name. The heir would take claim to all that the father owned, his property, his wealth, his possessions, his title. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Does that register? Do you understand what the doctrine of adoption offers? As one who is adopted, you are an heir of all that is our father's. He holds nothing back. You belong to God. You are formally adopted. You are legally adopted. You are bought with a price, bought by the blood of Christ. You are a real child of God's. You are his. You stand in the courtroom before God as judge, and you are there as a lawbreaker, as a sinner. From his bench, with gavel in hand, he looks at Christ. And for you, there's a double imputation. He died for your sins and has given you his righteousness. You have been declared justified. Then, to your amazement, the judge sets down his gavel, takes off his robe, comes down from his bench, and comes near you. And then there's another proceeding that takes place. It is now that God, as Father, makes the declaration that you are his child. No one else has parental rights over you anymore. You have been adopted. He is your father. You are his child. He protects you. He guides you. He loves you. And he keeps you until it is time to go home to your heavenly father, until it is time to go home with your older brother Jesus, until it's time to go home with all the saints that have also been adopted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, are we now amazed that we can call you as such? You've given us the privilege to be able to call you our Father. It would have been enough to be justified, to be forgiven and declared righteous, but you amazed us. For those in Christ adopted into your family, we are so blessed. You adopted us and became our Father. We are more than simply freed, freed from sin, freed from the penalty of sin. You love us and claim us as your own. In those hard times and in those dark days that we may have, help us to remember that we are not forsaken by you. Absolutely nothing can separate us from your love as our Father. Forgive us. Forgive us in our misunderstandings of who you are. You are a God that forgives and you are a God that is forever our loving, kind, protective, guiding Father. In your plan of redemption, you've taken the sinner and not only removed their guilt, not only removed them from being a child of wrath, you didn't even just leave them as, as a justified sinner, as an orphan, left to wander the streets on their own, but you took this one in and you chose us. The one, the one you've received by your son, to them you gave the right to become your children. You took this one in. You made them your son. You made them your daughter. By your grace you save. By your grace you justify. And by your grace you bring us into your eternal family. Praise God. Amen.